Good morning, everyone. If you will, please open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 14. I'll be reading verses 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even your own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, you are all that we need. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to gather here this morning to worship you and praise you in song and in fellowship. I thank you, Lord, for this body here in this church that we come to give you your time that is so well needed. We ask, Lord, now for this particular scripture, Lord, and forgive me, Lord, as I read it and prepared for this morning, this was a tough one for me to to grasp and understand. So we need your help this morning to fully understand what it means to be and what is the cost of discipleship. So Lord, we ask now that you would use Pastor Kyle as you do every Sunday, Lord. Help him to deliver your word and to bring clarity and understanding to this so this may affect our hearts and we would truly understand what you want and what you need from us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It was a week ago today, just a few moments ago, that a tragic accident took the life of former NBA star Kobe Bryant. All week we've been hearing heartfelt tributes. You could see the impact that had been made on the lives of many. One point of admiration that we've heard over and over again is Kobe's level of commitment, 
how he zealously sought and committed himself to work harder than anyone else. Uh, His high school coach spoke of finding him shooting baskets in a dark gym two hours before practice began. As a pro, when Kobe broke his wrist, one teammate thought he'd finally get to the gym before Kobe. But when he arrived the next morning, Kobe was already there in a full sweat with a cast on his arm, dribbling and shooting with the other hand. During Olympic training camp, For the Olympic team, when players were just waking up and yawning, making their way down for breakfast, Kobe was sitting there drenched in sweat with ice on his knees. He had just finished a three-hour workout. In Kobe's own words, we are obsessive. We wouldn't want to be doing anything other than what we're doing. Obsession is when you care about something 24 hours a day. Through the week, I've been wondering, what would people say about people who practice that same level of intensity and zeal, that obsessive commitment toward God? Would it still be considered an example that we all should follow? Or would it be seen as wasted fanaticism? Maybe even dangerous fanaticism? As Christians, do we think this kind of zeal is worth it? Do we consider this to be God's call on our lives? In the verses before us, Jesus shows he does. Jesus is looking for that same level of commitment that offers no excuses. Uh, This morning I had asked if we could change the order of the sermon with the Lord's Supper. As I worked through the passage, I just felt that we needed to engage with God this word first and then respond with the meal of declaration of our thankfulness as we think about what Christ has done for us and how we view Him. In verse 25, It tells us that Jesus is being followed by great crowds. People had lots of interest in him. And surely there are many expressions of of people wanting to follow him. Uh, We can picture it as Jesus has thousands of people around him and some are yelling, Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we believe in you. Jesus will follow you anywhere. Notice how Jesus' response begins. It says that 
he turned and said to them. So Jesus is moving. He's hearing things from the crowd that cause him to stop. And he turns around to them. And in essence, he says, do you really want to follow me? Then let me tell you what it looks like. What does it require to be my disciple? Following Jesus requires the full commitment of our heart. And Jesus could have just said that in a simple statement. All right, if you're going to follow me, then you need to commit to me wholeheartedly. But Jesus doesn't say it that way. Instead, he gives three provocative statements along with three illustrations that all capture that principle, but in a way that makes us think, in a way that, that causes us to examine and question our own hearts. These statements that are all strong, they're, they're meant to press against us. And this morning, if we're to receive God's word as intended, we need to allow the full weight of what Jesus is saying to, to rest upon it. We need to feel the, the heaviness of these statements that we would think about them appropriately. So first, these these three statements Jesus makes about what kind of commitment a disciple should have. Uh, statements that are meant to clear the, the fog of excuses. Because if, if there's something we are very good at, it's excuses of why we don't fully engage with what God has clearly said all of the time. Remember last week, a, a different setting, but as Luke is, is painting his picture of Jesus and his ministry, we saw those who had been invited to the feast who were filled with excuses. And so Luke follows that account with, with this that, that shreds all covering for excuses. First, we cannot be Jesus' disciple if we put other relationships ahead of him. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is using hyperbole here, which is an obvious exaggeration. We hear and use them all the time. You come home from school and tell your parents, I've got a ton of homework. Or, I have a million things to do today. Or maybe you've been grabbed by the Smiths into helping them move to their new house close by here. 
and you're with John and you're saying, this couch weighs a ton. Jesus was a master at using figurative language to help us think, to help us remember. Does Jesus really want us to hate our family members? The heart of Jesus concerning love to others is is very clear. There's no question. Uh, Back in chapter 6, Jesus said it's not enough just to love those that you're close to, friends and family. He says, you must love your enemies. Jesus left no exclusions of who we are to act in love toward. And so this language, this obvious exaggeration, was not in terms of malice that we're to have. It's a choice between important claims and family. They, They have a claim on our life. We biblically have responsibility toward our family. Scripture speaks strongly about failing to fulfill responsibility to our loved ones. Jesus is saying, commitment to me stands alone. It is a commitment like no other. A commitment that no other relationship should worm its way in and and create a wedge so that Your commitment to me is diminished because of your commitment to others. We fail Jesus when we put other relationships before him. Over the years, I've seen many times a a single who is committed to the Lord, involved in serving the life of the church, and they meet someone and that person starts coming to church because of their interest in them. And as soon as they're married, then they just start drifting away. And church attendance and serving starts diminishing. And before long, they're on the edges and maybe they're not even there anymore. They, they had felt that they were committed to the Lord. And yet this relationship, they wanted a relationship so badly and they became involved with someone who was willing to go to church, but there was no evidence of someone someone whose commitment to the Lord was equal to theirs. We don't need to, singles, be uh, just in relationships with those who have the same maturity as us. They, they should have the same intensity of commitment to the Lord. Or other times you have families that are involved in the life of the church and then just the activities with kids and they, they want to be a good parent. And so you're, you're involved in this activity and another and it begins to erode involvement even in... There's one event commanded by God for all believers and that is the gathering as we have today. There Lots of things churches can do and that we can choose to be a part of according to wisdom and and what's best for us. But it is the gathering that is commanded by the Lord. 
And even this one essential gathering, God has said, do not miss it. And families allow activities that are fine to keep us from it. We're not to allow any relationship to diminish our heart toward God. And, and we're, we're not to try to seek in any relationship what we should only seek from God. Loving relationships as we have described here, father, mother, wife, children, siblings. Uh, they're meant to bring joy to us and to enrich our lives, but we're not to look to a relationship that that relationship is going to fulfill my life. That person is going to make sure that I have joy. That is the role that Jesus fills. And he doesn't want us to diminish his place by seeking in others what he can give and what only he can fully give. And when we do put Jesus first, we end up loving others better. When we love Jesus as he is calling for, when our heart is fully given to him, when we love him with all that we are, we will love others better because that's Jesus' heart. No one loves better than him. And the more we're with him, the more we know him, the more he captures our hearts, we, we love others more and more like he does. And we end up being better brothers, sisters, Husbands, wives, parents, children. Because the appropriate position that allows us to have a heart that is as God made in love for him and one another. There's a second statement Jesus makes in verse 27. We cannot be Jesus' disciple... That's the language he says. I, I would have never have said it that strongly. I just, I wouldn't have. I'd have thought, well, I mean, you can be a disciple. You're not going to be fully, but there's no way I can work my way around what Jesus says. He says it three times. To, to try to worm around that would be to deny him. And to say, uh, he didn't really mean it. And don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. We cannot be Jesus' disciple unless we die to ourselves. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we need to, to see this cross imagery in the way that those Jesus was speaking to would understand it, uh, not how we understand it after the resurrection. And we think of the cross as a, a terrible thing Jesus went to, but 
We love the thought of the cross because it is our hope and our salvation. And we have this appropriate positive view of what the cross means to us. Jesus is speaking to the crowd before his crucifixion. And so there's only one way people think of the cross. It was the most brutal form of torture and execution known. Crucifixion was meant to shame the the person, the criminal being killed, to place fear in the population so that you will never be in that spot. So you're not going to create any trouble with Roman authorities. The cross was an instrument of death. And when you saw someone carrying their cross out of the city to some public place, they were walking to their execution. Crucifixion wasn't even spoken of in polite conversation. It was a one-way trip. You didn't come back. You are leaving to death. And so when Jesus says to bear our cross, it is not carry your problems and struggles in a worthy way. Everyone has burdens and struggles. Carrying our cross, and we saw it back in chapter 9 as well. Carrying our cross is taking everything in us that opposes the Lord and we are carrying it out to public execution. To carry our cross is to take what doesn't belong in our life, what should never be in the heart of a disciple, and we are taking it out and putting it to death. It is a one-way trip. We are casting out and we're leaving it there. So it no longer is a part of our life. To carry our cross means we don't carry anything that would come between us and how we live for our Lord. Bearing our cross believes that we find life in full when we embrace Jesus. We find life when we embrace Jesus fully. And if he is where we find life, then anything that is getting in the way of embracing Christ fully, is worthy to be put to death. And so the biblical expression we find throughout the New Testament, Paul particularly will speak of the dying to self, is dying to being the center of our world. It's not the diminishment of self, 
It's the diminishment of selfishness, of self-centeredness. Indeed, when we die to self-rule, selfishness, that's when we actually find what life should be. Because we are embracing Christ who gives life. And for the first time, we find out what life really can be. And so we, we put to death, we carry out obvious sins. We carry out their little, no big deal sins. We carry out to execution comforts that distract us. We carry out the need to be in control. We carry out our love of rights and privileges that keep us from committing ourselves to the agenda of Christ. Whatever is not submitted to Christ, we carry out to public execution. Meaning, we openly turn from that which keeps us from him and it's it's a one-way trip we we place it there and we do not carry it back with us there's a third statement jesus made we cannot be jesus disciple and have a greater call on our lives verse 33 So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, renounce all we have doesn't mean we have to give up all that we have. It means we're not ruled by any of it. Nothing we have is determining our values and our priorities. We're not being shaped by what we have or our position. We're always being shaped by the person of Jesus Christ, our allegiance and commitment to him. We renounce any other rule or kingdom. We renounce any value or priority that is pushing Jesus out of the way. Or as we'll see in a few weeks, Jesus says you cannot have two masters. For you will love one and hate the other. Renounce is is another aggressive word. We're taking action against competing excuses and desires. We must renounce it uh, to our own soul above all. Because we can allow ourselves to have the thought, that's not good, yeah, I I have to deal with that. And we may even say a little prayer, Lord, I I don't want this anger to rule me or I need to forgive. We need to be making a statement to our soul. We need to stop life. We need to come seriously before God. 
and acknowledge this doesn't belong. Spirit of God, fill me and help me in this. Guide me now. Speak to me. What are steps to take? What are changes to be made? What are values? How do I, before my brothers and sisters who know me well, how do I share with them that accountability happens, that I renounce this which has been ruling my heart, and it is an idol? And so we repudiate whatever tries to pull us in a different direction than Jesus. We, we declare it as unworthy, even if it is something on its own is, is good and can be in any believer's life. But for us, this is getting in the way and we renounce, we repudiate that in the way it's ruling us. Because love for Jesus is to be the great obsession that shapes our lives. It is to be the commitment that has no restrictions. Our love for Jesus fills us. Now some of you may be sitting here thinking, what sane self-respecting person would go along with all of that? What sane person is going to die to themselves? What sane person is going to renounce the things they want? What self-respecting person would agree to all of that? That's what we're hoping. That's Jesus' illustration answer that question. What type of person would agree to this? First, the, the type of person who wants life to be whole and complete. Verse 28, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation, he's not able to finish it. All will see him again to mock him, saying, the man began to build, he wasn't able to finish. A tower was a significant project. Almost every building was one story, maybe two. A, a tower at that time was a big job. The person, Jesus saying, seeking to build the, the tower, they have a desire, but their intentions are misguided. They have a desire to do something big. That they, they don't know how. They don't have the resources. It's not working. And they started. Maybe they started a few times. They got a foundation. There's some bricks up, but it's not working. The Lord who made us, who brought us out of nothing and caused us to exist. The one who made you, who formed you, who 
out of his heart brought you as an individual person into being, not just brought humanity into being. He, he chose each person knowing you before you existed, desiring that you would be in this world. No one knows you more. No one loves you more. And he leads for your best. He leads that your heart might be whole. If your life is crumbling and incomplete, Jesus builds to last. Jesus doesn't stop halfway. He doesn't lose interest. He doesn't run out of materials. And he he has a commitment. He has promised he will complete and perfect every believer. His word is on that. What person would agree to all of this commitment? The person who's tired of life being broken, and they want to be whole. Second, the person who would agree to this is the person who wants to prevent disaster. Verse 31. Or, let's look at it a different way. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while he's a long way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. It is foolish to ignore there are consequences for our actions. And the king puffed up, and he's going to expand his kingdom, and he gets his army, and he's impressed with 10,000. And then he realizes the guy coming against him is bigger than he is. He starts realizing, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Maybe I cannot control the narrative. Jesus who came to save us, to make life whole, he also will return And he returns to rule. He returns as king. He returns as the Lord. And those who want to ignore him and push him off and establish their own kingdom, there are consequences to ignoring the one who is Lord. And we're not going to overcome him And our excuses are not going to sound very grand when he is here. And all that we thought we could do to make life work, it just all evaporates. And we're left with nothing but ourselves, rebellious against the one who is Lord of all. We will face God on his terms. Because eternity, it belongs to him. And as Jesus says, when when he's yet a long way off, 
Send, send word and make terms of peace. While Jesus' coming has not yet happened, call to him now when you can come to terms of peace. And these are the terms. I must punish, the Lord says, every sin. My justice, it doesn't allow any other response to sin. But Jesus came and died for sinners. He paid the price for our sin. And anyone who calls upon him and says, forgive me. He cleanses us. He forgives us. He loves us. He adopts us. He keeps us. He finishes us. He comes and he brings peace, peace with him, peace in our soul. And as far as we're concerned, we're at peace with others. What person would agree to all of this? Thirdly, the person who wants life to be meaningful. Verse 34, Saul is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. Salt flavored food, so it tastes good. It also was a preservative to keep food from rotting. Is how people live through the winter. Without salt, saltiness in the salt, you might as well just throw sand on your food. It's not going to taste better. It's not going to preserve it. Now, how how does salt lose saltiness? By the addition of impurities. That's the only way it can lose its saltiness. The the addition of impurities. And so the, the saltiness of it is such a small part. It has no effect. Without Jesus... Life ends up being eternally meaningless. And all the things like the writer of Ecclesiastes, all the things that we can pursue that look so good, and we pursue them and we find out we're still empty. None of it fills the soul. None of it makes life whole. None of it carries into eternity. All of it ends up belonging to someone else. And even while we have it, it's corrupt and we have problems and heartache. And, and now we have heartache with the things we thought would solve it. And they have it. And now you have despair. If we know Jesus, if, if we truly know Jesus... Two reasons should be enough to be commit to him with all that we are. Jesus is worthy and Jesus is Lord. If we know him, his worthiness, the one who pursued us, loved us unto his own death, the one who sacrificed himself for us, He is worthy, he is Lord. The risen, glorious Christ rules over past, present, and future. There is no other. 
So maybe the bigger question, then why would someone submit to Christ? Perhaps the bigger question for us this morning is how can we know Jesus and withhold part of our life from him? How do we know Jesus and be impressed with our excuses? There are reasons we fail to be fully committed. We're weak, we're unknowing, we struggle. Sometimes we just plain mess up. And God has grace for strugglers. God has grace for those who've fallen flat. God has lots of grace for weak ones and those struggling. He's not looking to beat on you when you struggle. He offers his hand. But he sees the difference. He sees the difference between struggling and obstinate excuse. He sees the difference. Jesus. He saw the humility it would take to live in this world. He saw the suffering the cross would require. And without hesitation, Jesus' response to our need was to say, I'm all in. Jesus committed himself completely to us without any reservation without any excuse so what costs are you facing for Jesus and can you look Jesus in the face and say you're not worth this cost as, as we prepare for the Lord's table, let us consider how much is Jesus worth to you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you've placed plainly before us what you require. Father, help us to have eyes to see that this is your grace, for this is truth, truth that will sustain us forever. So I ask, Spirit of truth, speak to every heart, for you know every heart. Strip away blindness, reveal foolish thinking, empty excuses, and reveal the beauty and glory of Christ that we might want him with all that we are in his name. Amen.